Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. How are you, second service? I'll just say this. That was exponentially light years better than first service. Um, <laughs> totally makes sense because first service is at 8 o'clock, um, and no one's excited at 8 o'clock. Um, but I'm excited for where we're headed today. Um, just so you know, um, on your way out today, we have this book for you. Um, our team put this together, uh, 21 Ways We Pray. Um, we originally got them in in time for the launch of 21 Days of Prayer and Fasting, um, and a page had gotten added in, and so everything was off. Anyways, the team couldn't handle it. Their OCD took over, and they sent them back, and now they're back here just in time for the end of 21 Days of Praying and Fasting. But here's the good news. You don't have to quit praying or fasting just because the 21 days are over. In fact, the expectation would be that you and I would continue on in these uh, practices, these disciplines. And so there are 21 ways different staff um, and leaders in our church sort of wrote up a brief description of some of the unique ways they engage in prayer. I think you're going to thoroughly enjoy it. Make sure you grab a copy on your way out. It is for you, our gift to you. All right. Um, uh, My wife leaned over to me, um, and she said, uh, it's actually day 22 of 21 days. I said, no, we started on the Monday, but I know some people started on the Sunday, but we broke our fast last night. (laughs) Yes, God still loves us, um, even though we accidentally broke our fast last night. Um, But man, it's been a good time uh, this season has been. For me, I've heard lots of stories of things God's been saying to you. We're wrapping up really not simply 21 days of praying and fasting, but we're wrapping up this series that we've been in, looking at a one-verse prayer found in an obscure passage in 1 Chronicles chapter 4, known as the Prayer of Jabez. And we've really been asking the question, um, what kind of person would Jabez need to be in order to pray the prayer that he prays? I want to ask that question a little bit differently today. I want to ask this question. What kind of God would Jabez need to believe in to have the confidence to pray the prayer he prays in 1 Chronicles chapter 4? And it's actually really important to have the context um, that Jabez is set in because um, often our culture creates an expectation for us. In fact, I was just in Memphis um, last weekend, um, flew down on Wednesday, I believe it was, uh, preached in uh, Memphis at Bishop Matthews Church. How many of you remember Bishop Matthews when he was here? Um, he can get a little excited, uh, but it ain't nothing compared to his church in South Haven, uh, which is actually Mississippi, but they call it Memphisippi. And uh, I'll tell you what, they get fired up. Like at this point in the service, somebody would have already bust out several tambourines I'm not kidding. And you would be running laps around the room. 
I know, just like you grew up. Uh, like, it is full-on, Pentecostal, charismatic, and yet in each and every environment you find yourself, you discover that culture creates expectations. So you're expected to respond in a certain way. Like, I have expectations that you would say amen every now and then. Yeah. I never get my expectations met, but I still have them. I haven't abandoned them entirely. I hear it in my head, um, so I just pretend you're saying it from time to time. The same thing, though, is true for Jabez. Because Jabez has come out of a family line, out of a culture of super high expectation of God. In fact, Caleb's uh, uh, family line includes people like Judah and the tribe of Judah. It includes people like Caleb, one of the spies who went into the promised land, came back and said, yeah, 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 there's giants there, but who gives a rip? I mean, like, if God promised this land to us, as best I can tell, God pays for what he orders. Like, if God said this is our land, then it must be our land. Like, the only logical conclusion to Caleb is that God said this belonged to us, we should be able to take possession of it, no matter how scary it seems. In fact, there are some fundamental things that Caleb believes about God that allow him to step out at 80-plus years old and take possession of land, like engage in warfare. What is it that he hands off to the next generation so that Jabez, by the time we get to him in 1 Chronicles chapter 4, he prays this prayer. Let's take a look at it real quick. 1 Chronicles 4 verse 10, and Jabez called on the God of Israel saying, oh, that you would bless me indeed and enlarge my territory, that your hand would be with me and that you would keep me from evil that I may not cause pain. So God granted him what he requested. What would you need to believe about God in order for you to pray with that kind of confidence and faith? To be clear, Jabez is not asking for something that does not belong to him. He's actually asking to take possession of something God already promised to the children of Israel. And if God already promised it, then in his mind, it already belongs to us. So God, if you would go with me, we could take possession of the thing you've already made provision for. And I asked the question a couple of weeks ago, where are those areas in your life where God has already given you victory? You've just failed to take authority. Oh, that'll preach all day. Let's just stop there for a little while. Like, I'm telling you, for me, just like you, that, that should be a thought that locks into my brain and says, what are the areas God actually already promised me victory in? He already promised me authority in, and yet I just haven't taken it yet. And how much of that is rooted in what I believe or don't believe about God? Because what we believe about God should actually shape the way we live our daily lives. So the question is this, what would cause you to pray with the type of confidence that Jabez displays in this passage? 
And so I want to look briefly at um, what I call four universal laws. These are universal laws of the kingdom of God. Just like there are universal laws that govern the world that we live in, like the law of gravity and those sorts of things, there are also universal laws or principles that apply in the kingdom of God. And I believe they actually shape the way that Caleb and Jabez and so many others in the scriptures think and in result act. So here they are, the four laws of the kingdom. The first one is the law of motion. The kingdom is expanding, with or without you. The kingdom is expanding. The second one is the law of submission. Now, it's going to come as a shock, but God's kingdom isn't a democracy. No worry, we'll come back and visit that one. And then the law of endurance, God's kingdom is indestructible. It can't be destroyed. And the fourth one is the law of access. God's kingdom is for everyone. So let's visit these real briefly. The law of motion, God's kingdom is expanding. Jesus makes an interesting observation in Matthew 11, verse 12. And this is his prediction. He's uh, talking about the time when John the baptizer has been born until the very moment that Jesus is speaking, and I would say all the way up until this moment, us here today. He says, from the time John the Baptist began preaching until now, the kingdom of heaven has been sort of lackadaisical and stumbling along. I love the word that he chooses, has been forcefully advancing. You think about that, that terminology. From the days of John the Baptist, from the moment he started preaching, the kingdom of God is coming, the kingdom of God is coming. From that moment till now, the kingdom of God has been forcefully advancing. It's been in motion. It's been in movement. It's not sitting stagnant. That there was an impact when Jesus showed up on the scene. And when Jesus impacts the disciples, there's an effect from that impact in their lives. In fact, um, uh, speaking of ripples and waves, like it would seem odd if during those three months out of the year when our lakes aren't frozen, that you threw a rock into the water. For those of you who are new, they're unfrozen for longer than that. I just wanted to... Some of you are like, yeah, that's, that's true, only three. Um, but if you took a rock and you threw it out into the water, it'd be odd to us if no ripples came from the impact, right? I mean, that's the expectation. Some water's been displaced. There's a ripple effect that comes out from there. Or if waves just ceased splashing onto our shores around the ocean, you would think something's wrong if the effect of the moon and that gravitational pull has ceased and no longer are waves crashing or ripples going out from a rock hitting the water. And yet, in the lives of believers, you can routinely observe that there seems to be no actual ripple effect from them interacting with Jesus, which from a spiritual perspective seems nonsensical. No, no, I've surrendered my life to Jesus. I've had an encounter with God, but there's no waves crashing on the beach and there's no ripples from the impact in my life. You have to pause and ask yourself the question, have I actually had an encounter? Because when someone has an encounter with Jesus in the scriptures or when someone has an encounter with God in the word, there is a ripple effect from that encounter. There's an impact from the gravitational pull of the cross and the waves that crash on the beach as a result. Which brings me to maintenance crews. 
There is nothing more dangerous for a church than to settle into maintenance mode. I can remember my first youth ministry position in Lowell, Michigan. Uh, it was a small church in a rural community, a bedroom community for Grand Rapids, Michigan. And in Lowell, um, the youth group, uh, when I showed up, had four students. Three of those were the pastor's kids. So they had to be there. But I remember early on in youth ministry, feeling like the Lord just clearly said to me, Jonathan, I want you to prepare for four like you would prepare for 400. Like, I want you to put in the work. I want you to do the study. I want you to come ready to bring the word. But I want you to prepare for four like you would prepare for 400. And so I feel like we faithfully did that. And the group began to grow and grow. It suddenly um, outpaced the adult attendance on Wednesday nights. So they moved into our youth room with the black lights and the neon paint and all that stuff. And we moved into the sanctuary because that was the only space that the youth would fit. But I can distinctly remember the time when I was looking around and counting the number of students who were there and concerned that there might be less this week than last week. In fact, I remember the Lord very specifically taking me to a passage of Scripture where the king of Israel has numbered the people to decide if he can do what God told him to do, go to war. God has said, I want you to go into battle. You're guaranteed victory because I am with you. And instead, the king goes and does a census. He counts all of the people, and the Lord says to him, don't you dare number the people in order to decide if you can do what I already told you that you can do. And the Lord brought that to mind for me, and I realized in that moment, I was trying to keep the same number of students that we already had because I believed that was success, but it's not. It's maintenance. When a church slips into a position where we just try and keep what we have, we have completely forgotten the law of kingdom expansion. God's kingdom is in motion. It is expanding, and our job is not to maintain what we have. It's to join him in seeing his kingdom advance and expand. You were not created to be on a maintenance crew. You joined an army when you said yes to Jesus, and there aren't spectators in the army. And there are in the Air Force, but not in... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Totally kidding. I don't even... That just came out all of a sudden. It's not even third service. No, no. When, when you join up, right, you, you've actually joined a movement, and there aren't spectators in that movement. And you and I were called to join God in what he's doing in the world. And there should be a ripple effect from saying yes to Jesus in our life and in the lives of those around us. Which brings me to the law of submission. This one is nonsensical to us as Americans. We tend to think about um, submission as something that is absolutely dangerous. <laughs> no, 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 no. God's kingdom, and you need to understand this, is not a democracy. It's a monocracy, which is just a nicer way of saying it's a dictatorship except he's a benevolent dictator. That God is actually the sovereign rule and the sovereign reign of his kingdom. No matter how much you believe you're in charge of your own life, at the end of the day, what he has openly declared is that he rules and he reigns. In fact, there's the most powerful man in the world at the time, a man named Nebuchadnezzar. He's ruling over a nation called Babylon, and they have taken God's people, the Israelites, captive. 
which has just bolstered his confidence that he is the most powerful man in the world. And Nebuchadnezzar, on one particular occasion, is standing out on his balcony looking over all of the wonders of his hands, of all the things that he's created. In fact, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, are credited to him. And here Nebuchadnezzar stands looking at everything he's created. He says, look at everything that I have done. I am the stuff. Like, he's just looking out, and he's in awe and wonder of himself. And in that moment, God chooses to humble him. He goes out of his mind, like crazy. Like, his hair grows out long, like Jonas says his fingernails grow out long. He's living out in the field with the animals eating grass out in the field. And Nebuchadnezzar tells the story as he writes it in the book of Daniel. He tells the story about the moment that he allows his heart to be humbled and his thoughts about God to be elevated. Here's what he says in Daniel chapter 4 verses 34 and 35. My sanity returned. And I praised and worshipped the Most High and honored the one who lives forever. His rule is everlasting, and his kingdom is eternal. All the people of the earth are nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of the earth. No one can stop him or say to him, What do you mean by doing these things? The principle is simply this, that God's kingdom is not a democracy. God rules sovereignly. Maybe you grew up in a church culture where you were led to believe that God can't if you don't. That is not true. In fact, according to Acts chapter 19, we're told that God needs nothing. That the word need does not apply to God. He possesses all things. If he was hungry, he wouldn't tell you and I. Uh, right? God needs nothing. He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. And this simply means that God will accomplish whatever he chooses to accomplish. The only thing you and I get to decide is if we will be a part of it. Will I join him in what he's doing in the world, or will I let it pass me by? But God is the sovereign rule and the sovereign reign in his kingdom. And his kingdom will accomplish its purposes. Which brings me to the third one, the law of endurance. And the law of endurance is simply this, that God's kingdom is indestructible. While it's true that there's spiritual warfare, that there's a war raging, it is for the souls of men and women, but it is not for whether or not God will accomplish his purposes. That's why he can give us a book like Revelation, where we know the end of the story. The question is, how does knowing the end of the story impact how you actually live your life right now? God's kingdom is actually an eternal kingdom, which for us here in America can be a real challenge to assess in our own lives. Do I live like I believe I was created for eternity? Or do I live grabbing for everything I could enjoy here and now because I believe this is as good as it gets? 
We grab for youth as long as we can. We grab for money for as long as we can. We grab for power for as long as we can. We grab for significance among our peers for as long as we can. And yet the way we actually live our lives might reveal that we don't fundamentally believe that his kingdom is the only thing that is eternal and the thing I was created to enjoy forever. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 18, I love the way that Jesus describes this in a conversation with his disciples at a place literally known as the gates of hell. In fact, we have a team leaving for Israel here in the next week or so, and when they go to Israel, they're going to visit this site, and as they're standing there at this place of worship to the god Pan, what Jesus is going to declare to Peter is that Peter's claim that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, is actually the very foundation that the kingdom is built on. And here's what Jesus says, Matthew 18, verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter. It's a play on words. Peter's name means pebble or small rock. But on this rock, his declaration of who Jesus is, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Which is an interesting thought, because I've often thought about this, not as the kingdom is aggressive, but that the kingdom could withstand any onslaught that came against it. And yet I realize in this passage, I've never been attacked by a gate. Anybody here been attacked by gates before? Now, in all fairness, uh, when I lived on the farm, you would open a gate, the wind would blow it back, and it felt like it attacked you. But the reality is that gates aren't designed to attack. Gates are designed to withstand. Jesus is actually describing what his kingdom is like, not what hell is like. And what he's declaring is actually prophetically going to be fulfilled in those three days that he is in the tomb. In fact, we're told a whole bunch of mysterious things about those days. But during those days, one of the things we're told for certain is that Jesus descends into that region and he kicks in the gates of hell and he takes back the keys to death, hell, and the grave. He's actually declaring that this advancing kingdom, this indestructible kingdom, this eternal kingdom is taking over every space. Like, the gates of hell can't even withstand the onslaught of the kingdom. It is an advancing kingdom. It is not a democracy, and it is indestructible. It will accomplish its purposes. Which brings me to the last piece, which is the law of access. God's kingdom is for everyone. Now, I know you're probably a little bit excited when you first hear that, and then you start to think about some people that you hope it isn't for. <laughs> like Uncle So-and-so, or uh, like you think about situations, scenarios, you think about terrorists, you think about evil people in the world, and, and yet the reality is, from a biblical description, God's kingdom is actually for everyone. And everyone was in need of what God's kingdom Brings. In fact, this language of all, none, everyone, and anyone is rife in the scriptures, in particular in the New Testament passages. When you look at New Testament texts like Romans 3, verses 9 and 10, listen to the all, everyone sort of language. We have already shown that all people, say all people, say that includes you. You're supposed to point at someone when you said that. Um, all people, whether Jew or Gentile, are under the power of sin. As the scriptures say, 
No one is righteous, not even Sylvia. No one is righteous, not even one. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. It's just another way of saying we're all in the same boat. There's none who is righteous. No one has lived up to the standard that God has established. God fully knew that, and he made a way for us to experience life with him anyway. But then you move to the positive side. 2 Peter 3 verse 9 says this, the Lord is being patient for your sake. How many of you are glad for that? I'm glad for your sake. I'll tell you that much. I know a bunch of you. Is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. Or John 12, 32, Jesus speaking of his death on the cross, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw the people you like to myself. No, I will draw all people to myself. Which means something about how you should be living your life and the relationships that you have, those friends that you're terrified to share the gospel with, or those co-workers that you think want nothing to do with God, or uh, the individual that you meet at the grocery store. Like, it means something. Jesus is currently, because he has already been lifted up on the cross, he's already pulling them. He is already drawing them towards himself. And he's simply inviting you to join him in the drawing. He wants to kick in the gates and introduce himself. And he's simply inviting you to join him in what he's already up to in the world. It's for everyone. Here's the thing. I actually believe that Jabez and Caleb and so many other heroes of the faith fundamentally believe these things. They believe that God's kingdom is expanding. It's in motion. It's intended to take over the whole world. It's not a democracy. I I know for so many years you thought you had a vote in what God wanted to do. But he already knows what he wants to do. And it's already good. It's already perfect. It's not a democracy. It's indestructible and it's for everyone. And if those things are true, what difference have those truths made in how you actually live your daily life? I think... um, For many of us, it seemed sufficient at some point. Now, I believed all the right things. I prayed the prayer. I got baptized. I signed my name on the wall. And you've been sitting around here for years, sitting around church for years. But you didn't show up to watch a game. You showed up to join an army. Part of the reason that you maybe are languishing now is that you've forgotten that you were invited into action, that you have a part that you play, that you have a role in this whole thing, and it isn't to show up and sit in that seat. It's to join God in what he's doing in the world, and that he actually prepared things that only you could uniquely step into and experience the joy of joining him in what he's doing. 
He has every capacity to reach anyone he wants, and yet he's invited you to join him. In fact, there are people that you have access to that I will never have access to. There are people that you're in relationship with that I'm not in relationship with. I routinely hear people express things like, I wish I could get up and preach. You can, it just may not be here. It may be in your pulpit, at your podium, in your realm of influence, in your relationships, but everyone in this room has a pulpit to preach from. You have relationships you're engaged in, and you've been uniquely placed there to join God in what he's doing in the world, and we sit around wanting to do whatever is done on a stage, which is so minuscule in the kingdom. You realize we come here to be encouraged, to celebrate, to hear, to learn, to grow, but the reality is that we would go out from here and spend the other six days of the week, six and a half, six and three quarter days of the week actually joining God and what he's doing in the world. And the way that we live our lives out there actually tells us something about whether we believe these things or not, because if we believe them, they should have an impact on how we live them in the world around us. In a spiritual sense, it's not nonsensical that the rock of Jesus would land in the waters of your life and there would be no ripple effect from it that anybody could see. That just doesn't make sense in the kingdom and it's worth asking yourself and it's worth asking myself if there's no actual effect from the things I claim to believe in my daily life, maybe I haven't actually believed them. Oh, pastor, that's such a good word. I mean, it hurts and all, but it's so good. Trust me, I know. I have to preach it. Right? Like, it's for all of us. But the truth is, it should actually show up in the way we live our lives, in the way we repent to one another, in the way we show grace and forgiveness to one another, in the way we engage in the world around us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 Listen to the description of God and then the description of what he has for us. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus." so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This is a necessary truth, this passage is. It's actually a necessary realization, revelation, that it wasn't by your good works that you earned God's favor. That was strictly a gift that he bestowed on you and I. And he didn't just give us grace, he gave us position like seated us in heavenly places with his son, the perfect one, Christ Jesus. Like this is what God is like. This is how he has been towards us. But here's what I've discovered in the church as of late, is we've settled for this truth without recognizing that there's another part to what he is doing in our lives. We just sat around and said, man, I'm saved by grace, not by works. Ergo, it doesn't matter what I do with my life, and that isn't true. Here's the second piece. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Check. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to sit around and do nothing. 
to show up on Sundays and listen and then leave and do whatever we want. Uh, We were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Like you were actually created to participate and what God's doing in the world. And he knew you beforehand. He knew what your skills were. He knew what your gifts were. He knew what your passions were. We don't all do the same thing, but for who you are and the relationships he's placed you in and the experiences you've had, he created beforehand works that you were supposed to step into to join him in in the world. And it's actually really urgent. I remember several years ago, we were building the Palmer campus. Palmer had been meeting in an elementary school for what seemed like a lifetime to them. It, it was a long time, 10, 12 years, something like that, setting up and tearing down every week, and they had been squirreling away money, and finally the time came. We were ready to build the Palmer campus. We're getting towards the end of that $3.5 million project, and as is usually the case, you get right down to the end, and somebody wanted different light fixtures and different flooring, and all of a sudden, it's a $27 million project, it feels like, and now all of a sudden, here we are. It's time to be finished. We've got to come up with the final funds necessary, right, to pay off subcontractors and all of those kinds of things. And I didn't know where we were going to get it from. Like, I was looking at our accounts and thinking, okay, the youth have $12 in their account. We could take that. (laughs) Like, it's that sort of moment. I I can tell you exactly where I was. I was driving back from the office. I was headed towards my house. And I can tell you where I was on the road as I'm crying out to God, God, I need you to show up. Like, we need the final push. We need these resources to come in so that we can pay for this thing that we believe that you ordered. And so clearly, hearing from the Lord, Jonathan, you do realize that you needed me as much yesterday as you do today. You just didn't know it. Like, yesterday, your situation was just as dire, just as desperate. You just, you just didn't recognize it yesterday. But today, you feel it because of the circumstance that is in front of you. But what I want you to understand is that you are always in that position of dependency and need on me. In fact, that's true for all of us. I've recognized one of the greatest risks to my spiritual life is the fact that I live here in America. I was just in Memphis, ran into a good friend of ours, Dick Brogdon, who I'm hoping to get here for one of our missions conferences. He was born in the Middle East, grew up in the Middle East, um, and then came back, went to school, and returned as a missionary to the Middle East. He is living in one of the most difficult places in the world, openly preaches the gospel there, and their lives are routinely in danger. And as I was listening to him speak, he was one of the speakers at this conference, as I was listening to him speak, there was such a sense of dependency, genuineness, like tenderness, faith, and I thought to myself, I'm actually at more risk than he is of being dependent on myself, which is death to my spiritual life. Because by and large, I could go and get whatever I needed right now. Somebody might say something mean about me on Facebook, but that's about as far as it goes. My family doesn't live under the regular threat of real death. And it's actually to my detriment that I have it so easy. Because I have to be very deliberate and very intentional about recognizing the danger that my soul is in because of the comfort that I get to live in. We are actually in that place of need routinely. We just don't recognize it 
all the time. And the truth is this, you, by God, have been strategically placed in significant relationships to make an eternal difference. So are you? Are we? Am I? Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And so, dear brothers and sisters, and so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you, give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way we worship him. Listen, I, I stand back there sometimes. I stand up here sometimes. The way we're set up now, I can see all of you over here. I don't know if you can see me all the way on that side. But I routinely have this thought, judge me if you want, because I'm judging you. Like, why isn't anyone worshiping? Because we all know that real worshipers lift their hands. I don't know if you knew that. I don't know what church background you came from, but it, I'm just, but I'm looking, right? I'm looking for engagement. I'm looking like, and, and yet the reality is that isn't true worship. True worship is how I live out there. Because you and I both know people can show up in here, worship their faces off, and live like hell out there. You know what I mean? Like, you know some, they're sitting beside, no, I'm just kidding. I don't know who it is. But, but the reality is that it's both and. Right, I want to show up here and I want to engage in worship with all of you in celebration of who God is. But that's only a fraction, such a small piece of what actual worship is. Actual worship is giving my body as a living sacrifice to accomplish God's purposes in the world. And listen to the outcome of that. Here's what it says. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. Let's just read that one more time. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. Oh, that's so good. Just one more time. Don't, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. What you believe about him should shape the person that you are. Then you will learn how to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. How many of you would like to know God's will for you? Good. Okay. Half of us. Some of you are like, I already know it. I didn't want it. I'm running from it. Like, I get it. I did that for a long, long time. But if you want to know what is, and here's the thing. I love the word that's left out of that piece. You'll know his will for you, his good and pleasing and perfect will. It doesn't include easy. Because I've discovered in my life that the things actually worth having, worth experiencing, worth enjoying are actually rarely, if ever, easy. What I'm interested in is the good and the perfect and the pleasing. And what he guarantees is that if you and I would surrender this temporary dwelling, it is going to disappear. And if we would surrender this to him, we would get the joy of discovering what he's created us for, both in the here and now and in the forever. Because God's kingdom is in motion. It isn't a democracy. It it is submission. It is eternal, indestructible, and it's for everyone, including you.
including me. I invite you to stand with me. Here in just a moment, we're going to go back into this song, Names. Talk about the names of God, who He declares that He is. And my prayer over this coming week is that the realization, the acknowledgement that maybe my sound system quit working, the, the realization that maybe my life hasn't come into alignment with what I say I believe, and it's worth asking the question, do I actually believe it? And then allowing Him to move me in the direction He is calling me to go. So Jesus, that is our desire. Recognize that all of us are prone to hypocrisy. That is being worked out for the rest of our lives. But what we want to do is allow you to evaluate. Not man to judge, but you to look in on our hearts and to answer the question, has there been a ripple effect from your impact in my life? Are the waves crashing as a result of the pull of the cross towards you? And would you change? Would you renew our minds? Would you reshape our thinking and bring it into alignment with who you declare that you are? And as a result, may we discover the joy of joining you in what you're doing in the world. In Jesus' name prayer ministry teams are available on both sides as we sing this song one more time I'm going to invite you to allow them to join with you in prayer to lift your heart up towards God let's worship together thank you for listening for more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play